Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, you have declared that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Lord, as we come to those words that have come directly from heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would open up our minds and our hearts to be able to receive from you. Lord, I'm conscious that the manna in the wilderness was your provision, your food from heaven, but it was down to the Israelites to go out individually and collect that food for themselves. Lord, I believe that you provided for us this morning, but Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to pick up and to gather from your word this morning that which is intended for us, that it would nourish us, strengthen us, and equip us for the service that you have laid out for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, can you open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the little grey basket on the table over there. Uh, feel free to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, please take a Bible as a gift from the Lord to you this morning. Um, we're going to be doing chapter 5 and, God willing, going into chapter 6 a little bit. Um, so continuing on from last week, the Philistines were an occupying presence in Israel at this time. This is about 3,000 years ago. And uh, they'd been raised up by the Lord uh, God to oppress the people of Israel because Israel had turned away from the Lord and his law. They had sunk into a moral and spiritual decay. Now the Lord had guaranteed military victory against all Israel's enemies if they served him faithfully and they kept the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, but God had also declared in the Mosaic Covenant that they would have military failure against all their enemies if they failed to keep his covenant. And last time we saw that Israel mounted its armies uh, against Philistia, against the Philistines at a place called Ebenezer. And uh, the Philistines mounted its armies against Israel at Aphek, all about 20 miles away from Shiloh where the tabernacle was sited. And the first battle between these two peoples resulted in an Israeli defeat to the tune of 4,000 men. Then Israel regrouped and they determined, right, we're going to go back into battle and we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with us. So, and the second battle saw an even greater defeat. Israel lost 30,000 men. But not only that, uh, they lost the Ark of the Covenant as well. Charles Spurgeon said, God will not go forth with that man who marches forth in his own strength. And this was the problem. Israel had marched forth in its own strength with a superstitious hope that this Ark of the Covenant would secure victory, when what would have secured victory was obedience and faithfulness to God. So not only was the Ark of the Covenant captured by the Philistines, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were killed in the battle and when the news reached Eli the high priest he killed over broke his neck and died. Now elsewhere in scripture we gathered evidence to show us that uh, it looked like the Philistines went on after the battle to Shiloh and devastated the city of Shiloh would have destroyed the tabernacle in its process and laid waste that city. So the tabernacle was destroyed as well. And you'd think that Israel, indignant at the loss of the ark, would send a herald from Dan to Beersheba to muster a fighting force to reclaim the ark. Right, we're not going to let this 
happen to us. We're going to get it back. But you know what? Such was the loss of zeal and courage among the nation that just apathy and resignation appear to have been the dominant national mood at the time. They had a crushed spirit as a nation. Israel had no tabernacle, had no priesthood, had no high priest, they had no army. They were oppressed, defeated and subject to the Philistine presence and the Ark of God, which represented the presence and covenant of God with Israel, was in enemy hands. It would seem that God had abandoned them. And judgment had truly begun at the household of God. But now the cleansing fire of God that had swept through Israel would there now start to sweep across the nation of Philistia. So let's read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Well, Ashdod was one of the five Philistine cities, along with Gath, Ekron, Gath, Ekron, uh, Gaza, and Ashkelon. There we go, five uh, Philistine cities. And over every one of those five cities was a lord of the Philistines. And the city, so the city was ruled by these lords. And in Ashdod, there was a temple to the god Dagon, the god of the Philistines, which, as we said last time, is half man, half fish. The top, the torso, the head was a man, and the bottom tail like a, a fish. So it's a bit of a merman, really. And the ark was placed in the temple of Dagon next to this statue of their god, perhaps as a trophy of victory. Now, the Philistines, like all pagan nations, did not devote themselves to one god, but many gods. And instead of destroying foreign deities, they would add that fallen deity to the pantheon of deities that they would have in the temple. But they would see that their god, Dagon, was the superior god because he defeated the god of the Israelites. They weren't saying that uh, the god of the Israelites wasn't a true god, just that their god was superior. Now we know that when Samson was captured, a great sacrifice to Dagon was offered. It says in Judges 16.23, Now the lords of the Philistines gather together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has delivered into our hands Samson our enemy. Now this event, even though it's earlier in the Bible, well, it's actually still a little bit into the future of where we are at the moment, historically. And so it's reasonable to assume that after the, the ark was placed in the temple, a similar sacrifice took place and there was worshipping and there was rejoicing at the defeat of Israel. So the, Israel, the Philistines are riding high uh, on their victory. But let me ask you this question. Shall the ark, the symbol of God's presence, be made a prisoner to Dagon, some foreign deity? Will God be made subordinate to a Philistine god? Well, we've read of the Philistines' triumph over the Ark. Now we will read of the Ark's triumph over the Philistines. 
First, over their god Dagon, and second, over the people, the Philistines themselves. Let's read verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and set it in its place again. So the pagan deity is toppled in the presence of God. We see that the Lord needs no man to prove his preeminence overall. God can defend himself. But do you know what? What is actually happening here is a lot more profound than just an idol falling over. When Abraham, Abraham encountered God, Genesis 17 verse 3, when Balaam encountered God in Numbers 22 and 31, and when Joshua encountered God in Joshua 5 verse 14, they all reacted in exactly the same way. They fell on their faces to worship God. And the language used here in 1 Samuel 5 verse 3 is the same language used in those three other cases. And what it is saying is, Dagon hasn't just been toppled over, he has fallen on his face to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Dagon is recognising the, the supremacy of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I think it's quite wonderful when you see that in the text. Do you know, every now and again, I'll go upstairs, go into our bedroom, and I'll see Abby kneeling by the side of the bed with a Bible open. And it's like, oh, sorry, I've interrupted, and just close the door and back off. And every now and again, she might open the door of the office and see me in devotion, and she, oh, sorry, and back off. You know, it's a private time, that time of devotion between the Lord. And there is a sense here that that's exactly what's happening. You know, these Philistine priests walk in and it's like, oh, excuse me, we've broken in on a private act of devotion and they kind of back away almost. But then they see the people outside wanting to come in to worship Dagon. They've heard about this new idol that they've been able to get from Israel, this ark. They want to see that as well. And uh, so quickly they've got to close the doors and work out what they're going to do about the situation. So a little embarrassed, they've got to come up with an explanation, you know, how did this happen? And maybe there was an earthquake last night. Did you feel it? Well, I wasn't too sure at the time, but now you mention it, maybe there was an earthquake. Maybe that's how he fell over. So they quickly write him up and they whitewash the entire situation. And once it's all dusted down, looking good again, they open the doors and let the worshippers come in that day. And isn't that the way? People don't like their idols dethroned. And when something proves to be damaging in our own life and our walk with God, our own idols, don't we find a way, an excuse to get round it, to dust it down and make it look okay somehow? They don't want to acknowledge that Dagon is inferior to the God of Israel. Isaiah 45 verse 23 came to mind. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. You know, a day is coming when every man or woman, every angel or demon, every believer or unbeliever will bow the knee before God the way that Dagon bowed before God. Not as some forced measure 
you know what it's like you see it in films they bring a prisoner forward before the king and they force him down to his knees so he has to bow before the king it will not be a forced act the bowing of the knee it will be a voluntary act you see such is the brilliance of god's glory such is the piercing conviction of god's holiness that it is impossible not to fall on your knees and bow your head to the ground in the presence of his majesty the arrogance of the atheist will be silenced the accusation of the defiant will be struck dumb all will declare the greatness of god as dagon did anyway dagon's back on his perch verse 4 and when they arose early the next morning there was dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the lord the head of dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold only Dagon's torso was left of it. So in walked the priests, second morning. Oh no, how are we going to get round this one? And they're there with their super glue trying to stick Dagon together and they just know it's not going to wash. The people are going to see right through that. But what is happening here? What is happening? Well, the head is the seat of wisdom and the hands are the instruments of strength. And the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has confounded the wisdom and has overpowered the strength of the Philistine God. Not anywhere, but in his own temple as well. The place where Dagon's strength should be the greatest and where his power should be most evident is where God has shown himself supreme and victorious. It reminded me of a story. This is not biblical, it's... It's not biblical, it's um, uh, Jewish tradition, but this is what the rabbis say, talking about Abraham and his relationship with his father, Terah. It says, Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol maker and merchant in Ur. You know that Abraham came from Ur, and, it's, and the story says that Terah made idols and sold idols. And Terah went away on a journey and he left Abraham in charge of the store. Abraham took a stick and shattered all the idols in the store and then he placed the stick in the hand of the largest idol. When Terah returned from his journey, he found his merchandise in pieces on the floor. What happened? He demanded to know. Oh, Father, it was terrible, Abraham said. The small idols got hungry and they started fighting for food. And finally, the large idol got angry and broke them into little pieces. Idols don't get hungry, said Terah. They don't get angry. They don't speak. They're just idols. Upon hearing this, Abraham smiled and said, Oh, Father, if only your ears could hear what your mouth is saying, why then do you worship them? And there's Abraham exposing the folly of idol worship. You know, the Philistines should have seen the frailty of their idol when he saw him keeled over and broken. They should have turned and repented and started serving the God of Israel. You see, this is God revealing himself to the Philistines, making himself known to this nation. Now, there was no human intervention in the breaking of this idol of Dagon. God was the one with a stick in his hands, while the hands of Dagon were on the threshold. But what is the Lord doing? He's showing grace to the Philistines. He's showing grace to the Philistines. 
You see, for 20 years, God had allowed the Philistines to conquer his people, but now he was making himself known to them personally. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, uh, The Lord desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And at some point, in some way, God makes himself known to all men. He reveals himself to all men. He knocks on the door of their lives, their hearts, that all may have the opportunity to repent and put their faith in him. And this is God knocking on the door of the lives of the Philistines, making himself known, giving them an opportunity to repent. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has made himself known through the invisible attributes, through creation, so that people are without excuse. Nobody will come before God's throne and be able to say, you didn't reveal yourself to me. I didn't know you existed. The Bible is clear. All men are without excuse. And you know, it's an incredible thing. God raises up a nation to judge Israel, then judges that nation for judging the apple of his eye. Surely this is a God to be feared and revered. But you know what? God always shows grace before judgment, and this is God's grace before judgment. Verse 5. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So here we see the defiance and the unbelieving heart of the Philistines. They refuse to accept the evidence of their eyes and they refuse to bow the, the knee the way that Dagon did. And this really is the turning point of uh, the Philistine fortune. They're quite literally at the threshold of knowing God at this point. But instead of bowing the knee, they choose to step over the threshold. And from this point forward, God's judgment on the people will now reign. Verse 6. But on the hand of the Lord, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumours, both Ashdod and its territory. So here we learn that each city had a territory attached to it. Um, so each of the five lords ruled only not only a city, but a region uh, within um, the area of Felicia. God recognises uh, county, tribal and regional borders. He recognises national borders and he recognises family property borders as well. Now some translations say that the plague on the Philistines were hemorrhoids, uh, leading many to think that this is hemorrhoids that is actually striking the people, which is, uh, you know, piles. God strikes the people of uh, Philistia with piles. And doing some research, uh, apparently three out of four adults will experience hemorrhoids at some point, so I'm guessing that uh, there are people here that might know a little of what's going on. I won't ask for a show of hands, um, but I can see that some people are sitting kind of awkward, so, you know. <laughs> but these, these are no ordinary piles. There's a Bible commentator called Adam Clark. He was a Methodist minister at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. He spent 40 years writing his commentary on the Bible. It's excellent. And he said this on this verse. The word here to do with uh, hemorrhoids uh, probably means the disease called 
the bleeding piles, which appears to have been accompanied with dysentery, bloody flux, and ulcerated anus. So not very nice at all. And uh, so every time the Philistine goes to the toilet, uh, they're reminded of God's judgment. So that's a few times a day, they're reminded of God's judgment. Do you know what? You know, you think about Raiders of the Lost Ark and what, uh, the judgment that came out of that ark. You're thinking it would have been a very different film if this was the judgment that came out of the ark and struck the Nazis. But um, you might have a footnote in your Bible attached to this uh, verse 5, um, sorry, verse 6, because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and in the Latin Vulgate, written by Jerome in about 500 AD, there's an additional section to the verse which reads, And in the midst of their land, rats sprang up, and there was a great death panic in the city. And... This makes sense that rats were ravaging the city at the same time as later on when the Philistines return the ark they not only make five golden piles uh, but they also may send five golden rats as well, one for each city. And the theory is that that there was a plague of rats that came in, disease was attached to rats like the bubonic plague and that's what caused this disease which affected the backsides of the Philistines certainly makes them sit up and pay attention, especially if you can't sit down. Okay, verses 7 and 8. And when the men of Ashdod say how it was, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of Israel be taken away, from, taken away to Gath. And so they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So the men of uh, Ashdod clearly recognise that the cause of all this sickness is having the ark in the temple of Dagon. Uh, but instead of yielding to God, petitioning him for mercy, they harden their hearts. And what do they do? They call a G5 summit where all the five lords of the five cities come together and uh, a course of action is determined. We're going to move the ark from Ashdod to Gath. Now I'm guessing that the people of Ashdod did not tell the people of Gath what they were suffering with. Otherwise, would, why would the people of Gath say, yep, okay, we'll take the, the ark with us. I wonder whether they present it as, look, we've got this trophy of war with the Israelites. It's not fair that we at Ashdod just have it all to ourselves. Why don't we do a tour of, of, of celebration and you can go to your city next and you can have the Ark of the Covenant. And with friends like these, who needs enemies, eh? Uh, so Gath, yeah, suckers for a trophy of war, accepts and uh, they're going to soon realise they've been dealt a bum deal uh, in more ways than one. Uh, by uh, moving the Ark, they succeeded only in moving the plague and death and destruction uh, visited the Philistine city and the territory of Gath. Um, Yes, verse 9. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord uh, was against the city with a very great destruction and he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumours broke out on them. Yes, Uh, so the Lord is making himself known in a greater way because even more people are falling foul 
of this blight, of this plague. But you know what? The people of Gath hardened their hearts, just like the people of Ashdod as well. And so what happens? Verse 10. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron, the third Philistine city. And so it was that the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So clearly at this point, words got out and they're passing this hot potato from one city to the next. Nobody wants anything to do with it. Nobody likes the report that's coming out of the consequences. And you know, it's like, just think about passing one, this hot potato from one person to the next, and the problem doesn't get better, the problem just gets worse. Kind of feels like our country at the moment. We pass the leadership from one person to another, and it's just going from bad to worse. So the people of Ekron see the ark coming, cry out in despair, and by now the fear of God has fallen across the whole of uh, Felicia. Uh, You find out in chapter 6 that it wasn't just these three cities that were struck with a plague, but all five cities were struck with a plague, and everybody was experiencing the wrath of God. And you know, it's interesting that um, they've got this overwhelming proof of the reality of God, yet there is still this hardening of the heart, this failure to yield. And to me, it's hard to compute because when God makes himself known to me, I yielded my heart. But for other people, it would seem as if no amount of evidence will cause them to yield. Um, It doesn't compute. Why didn't the Philistines cry out to God for mercy? Well, it's the same reason that people don't cry out to God today. It's not from want of evidence for the existence of God, because there's plenty of evidence. And it's not from apologetics arguments um, that persuade them of the reality of God either. And it's not from want of God revealing himself to them. The answer is in John 3.19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It's not that there is insufficient light or evidence to the reality of God. It's the fact that men love darkness. They love their sin. They love their lives. They do not want to yield or humble themselves and turn in faith and repentance to God. They want their Dagons. They want their idols. And when God strikes, they won't humble themselves. If anything, they'll just use it as a reason to rage at God and say, why would I serve a God like this when he treats things like this, people like this? When if only they would yield to a loving saviour, what blessing, joy and riches would be theirs. Verses 11 and 12. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city the hand of God was very heavy there and the men who did not die were stricken with tumours and the cry of the city went up to heaven so there's a second G5 meeting and a unanimous resolution was made Send away the ark of God of Israel, let it go back to its own place, so that it does not kill us and our people. And you know, it's such a shame that they're motivated by fear of death instead of the fear of God. 
but that's it. People don't want God in their lives. They want to get him as far away from them as possible. And as they try to send the ark back to Israel, they're trying to get God away from them as much. You know, you see it when you go outside and do some street preaching. People give you a wide berth. They go the other side of the road. They don't want to know. You try to hand it a tract. No, it's okay. I don't want anything to do with it. Thanks, mate. And the police and society are hostile to those, to, to those who are preaching and want to share. People don't want to know. They want to they keep you at a distance. Now, the hand of the Lord was heavy on Ekron. Many people were dying at the Lord's hand. And if they were spared death, they suffered hemorrhoids. So, not a good scenario. It's reminiscence of the plagues that will fall upon humankind during the tribulation. God's judgment will be self-evident, but men still won't repent. Okay, we're going to go into chapter 6 a little bit. Now, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. So for seven months, seven months, Felicia has endured these plagues. And in that time, they've been moving the ark from pillar to post and uh, only succeeded in causing the plague to spread further and wider. So having resolved to get rid of the ark, they take counsel from their priests and their diviners about the best way to do this, to return the ark. And the counsel they received is they need to send the ark back with a trespass offering. Some Bible translations might have the word guilt offering. Now, a trespass offering is different to a sin offering. There were different offerings. You can find all those offerings at the beginning of Leviticus. And a sin offering is made when there has been an intentional sin committed. But a trespass or guilt offering is made when an unintentional sin has been committed. So what the Philistines are saying is, we have committed an unintentional sin here against God, so we'll send a trespass offering back to make penance. So they admit some form of guilt for the nation's actions, but uh, are persuading the people to do the right thing so that they can appease the God of Israel and hopefully bring healing to the affliction that people are experiencing. Verses 4 and 5. Then they said, What is the trespass offering that we should return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. Can you see that? On all of you and all your lords. All the lords, all the people were experiencing this. Therefore you shall make images of your tumours and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. Five golden tumours, five golden rats. That was the trespass offering. Not the sort of thing you want on your hope chain, really. Um, oh, that's a pretty little pendant you have around your neck. What's that? Oh, that's my little hemorrhoid. No, that's not the sort of thing that you uh, have for jewellery. But clearly the rats have been a, a factor in the plague that's befallen the Philistines. And um, everybody has endured this loss. So everybody com contributes to the goal that's going to be formed into these five rats and five golden tumours. 
representing each of the cities. And in all of this, there is no sense of honouring the Lord as God. They just want rid of the ark and the curse. And they even recognise that that curse has befallen their gods, but they want their gods instead of the one who has shown himself to be superior. It shows you the folly of man and the folly of sin. They, people, sin makes you settle for second best. Verse 6. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Why, uh, when, he didn't, when he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? So the Philistines are well aware that the hand of judgment that had fallen on them was the same hand of judgment that had fallen on the Egyptians before them. And that the Egyptians had hardened their hearts, resulting in mass deaths of the firstborn and the subsequent drowning of Pharaoh and his armies when he pursued Israel. And it begs belief that they know what happened to Egypt because of hardening their hearts, and yet that's exactly what the Philistines are doing, hardening their hearts and pushing God away instead of bowing the knee. I mean, they're admitting their own guilt here. I, it just doesn't compute. God has made himself known. He's trying to draw them to himself, but they're just pushing him further and further away. Verses seven, and nine, 7 to 9. Now therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, hitch the cows to the cart, and take the calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord, set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us, it happened to us by chance. So they develop a plan and the plan is this, they need a new cart, not some beat up second hand vehicle that's been clocked, they've got a brand new cart, that's what we're going to use. And then they need two milk cows, two female cows that have never been yoked and you take away their calves, shut them away in the city and you yoke these cows to the cart uh, which seems a little cruel but there is a method in their madness. And then the ark was placed on the cart, which is not ideal. It should have been carried with poles by Levite priests, but this is what they're doing. And along with that uh, um, ark, they get a chest. And in that chest are the five golden tumours and the five golden rats. And the cart would be set on the road to Beth Shemesh, which is an Israeli city. And the Philistines would watch to see what happens. Now, if nature ruled the day, the cows would buck the yoke, having never pulled a cart before, and they would turn from the road to Beth Shemesh and go back to the city because of that maternal instinct for their calves. This would be an evidence, if this happened to the Philistines, that they had misread the signs and that God wasn't in this at all, that the plagues had been a result of chance. But if God ruled the day, the cows would yield to the yoke and not buck it, and they would stay on the road to Beth Shemesh uh, and operate against nature, leaving their calves behind. And this would be the evidence that it was the hands of God that visited them with these plagues. So there'd be one last evidence, one last proof that God was in charge. 
one last opportunity to repent. So what happens? Verse 10, then the men did so. They took two milk cows, hit them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the way, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. So God ruled the day. The fact that the cows are lowing as they walk shows that there is a desire there for their calves, but it's also a clear indicator that there is a supernatural work at hand because they don't turn back to the city, they go on to Beth Shemesh. This is the sign, as I said, of a supernatural work being birthed in, 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 the, in, in uh, these, these cows and before the eyes of the Philistines. But you know, this is the sign of a supernatural work in our lives as well. Because our nature compels us to walk in a certain way, in a certain direction, according to the flesh. But the evidence of God's supernatural work in our lives is that we are given a new nature in Christ, which motivates us to, motivates us to walk in a different way and a different direction according to the Spirit. Are you walking according to the flesh in the direction that your nature determines? Or are you walking in the way of God according to the new nature that the Spirit has given you? That's the sign of salvation. Are you walking on a highway of holiness, on a roadway of righteousness according to the Spirit? Or are you still living according to the flesh? Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvests in the valley and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. No wonder they rejoiced to see it. The ark is the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And when Israel lost the ark in the battle to the Philistines seven months earlier, I'm sure they thought they'd never see it again. Yet here by some miracle, it is coming to them on an ark. Can you imagine the wonder, the surprise, as they see it coming towards them? Never thought they'd see that day. And the people of Beth Shemesh are reaping the wheat harvest, which means that it's the time of year when the Feast of Weeks is celebrated. And uh, the Feast of Weeks is one of the three pilgrimage feasts. And not only does it celebrate the harvest, but the Feast of Weeks celebrates the giving of the law. So at the time that they celebrate the giving of the law, what do they see coming to them on the ark? The law of God in the Ark of the Covenant. God's law is coming back to them. God's grace is returning to the land. So last couple of verses. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the Ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. So back in Joshua chapter 21, after the conquest of the land of Canaan, 48 cities were allotted to the Levites. One of them was Beth Shemesh. 
Beth Shemesh is a city of Levites. So the Levites are on hand to take down the ark in an appropriate way and to set it upon the rock. But you know what? Despite being a Levite city, it doesn't mean that they do everything in a lawful way. Remember the condition of Israel at this time. They are in rebellion against God. So there's, there's great rejoicing um, over the return of the ark. They, it spills over to a spontaneous act of sacrifice and worship. The cart is broken up to make a fire. The two cows are slaughtered and used as an offering. And it all looks good and righteous, but, you know, as I said, the nation's in rebellion. And although it looks spiritual and healthy, it's not. Because the offerings are not keeping with the Mosaic law. Burnt offerings should only be made in the tabernacle, we're told in Deuteronomy 12, verse 5 to 6. And this is not happening in the tabernacle. And what's more, it should only be male oxen that are used in sacrifice, not female cows. So on two counts, this sacrifice isn't quite right which shows you that even though it's looking good, it's not good. And how wrong the Beth Shemeshites are, we'll actually see next time, because they make a gross error and pay heavily for it. But while the Ark has returned to Israel, Israel hasn't properly returned to the Lord. And the price will be paid for this will be quite severe. We'll look at that next week. But what of the five lords of the Philistines? Well, we're told when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. The lords of the Philistines see all of this with their own eyes, no doubt congratulating themselves that they brought an end at last to this matter. Hopefully they can return home, they'll be healed of all the plagues, and life can return to normal. But, you know, as the cart with the ark disappears into the distance, so the last hope for mercy goes with it. Time and time again God has revealed himself to the Philistines. Time and time again they've rejected God and hardened their hearts. And it won't be long after this that Samson will lean on the pillars of the temple and the crushing weight of God's judgment will fall on these five lords. Genesis 6 verse 3 says, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for indeed, for he is indeed flesh, for his days shall be 120 years. Now God ordains a time for men to repent. He reveals himself to mankind for a season, and in that season it is the opportunity to repent. But if they do not take advantage of, of that season and repent, he will not strive with man forever. In Noah's day it was 120 years. In the case of the Canaanites, he gave them 600 years to repent before Joshua and the Israelites invaded the land. In the case of the Philistines, he gave them seven months. Seven months when he gave them abundant evidence of his existence, but they refused to repent. Psalm 90, written by Moses, verse 10, says, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength are 80 years, yet their boast is only labour and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away. God has ordained that the average human being lives 70 years. That's 70 years of grace that he can call upon the name of the Lord, that you can repent, that you can turn to the Lord. But if you continue to resist, 
God will not strive with you forever. You know, the time of God's grace ended with the Philistines. The five lords met with their judgment soon after. And they give it another 20 years and Samuel will rise up to judge the Philistines, subdue them, and then they'll just re receive just increases defeat, increasing defeats time and time again after that. God's grace turned away from Felicia at this point. Now, if you're listening to this teaching online, um, I just want to say this. If you're listening and you do not know the Lord, don't be stubborn and resistant like the Philistines. Turn to him now and repent of your sin and ask for forgiveness. Reject your Dagons, reject your idols, put your life into the hands of God Almighty. He is a gracious and compassionate Father who longs to fill your days with good things and will reward you with an eternity of loving kindness. But if you let this opportunity pass, the way that the Philistines let the opportunity pass, there is only judgment, pain and sorrow that awaits you. Don't let the ark of God go into the distance and your opportunity passed. Today is the day of salvation. Amen. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to learn the lesson of your word, to apply it to our lives. Lord, expose the idols in our lives. Break off the hands, break off the head, destroy those idols that we would worship and serve you and you alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.